sitting in the closet, just wondering the place is still standing, is where they used a candle. <clears throat> and they set this candle into a uh, linen closet. And the candle was tipped over and melted its own self out in its wax. Wait, you found this um, around the time of the murder? Yes, ma'am, I found this that day I was there. Uh, the day or the day after uh, Tuesday, or was that Wednesday or Thursday was that day when I went from Venice to into Arcadia. Um, did you tell police about that candle? Excuse me, ma'am, I didn't touch it. I didn't want my fingerprints on it. But you, did you tell the police about it? Nothing was ever said or done anything about this blood or that candle. That, did they ever interview you? Yes, ma'am. I did call the, the, the leading investigator on this case. His name was Danny Tour. I believe he's retired by now. Mm-hmm. He was fired, actually. Did you ever know Frankie and Pete Duell to be friends or know each other or hang out? I never. I, I could imagine that could have been friends through Connie, but... Right and after, he, and he wasn't coming over visiting my dad and being over there on the premises and barbecuing with him and doing that pulling around behind his back. What do you remember about Connie's behavior right afterwards? You said you were over at the house. What was what do you what do you remember seeing her do? And did she stay long? Did she leave? What do you remember about those days right afterward? I can't really call too much of her actions. All I know is that she called, like say that morning, inquiring how fast she could get her insurance money is when she found out that she was not the daddy's beneficiary on this policy. Uh. uh that's the other. Th- that's the other thing I want to ask you about. She also mentioned in her very, very first interview when when she was being interviewed before they started really, you know, laying into her. Just the first day, of course, they're going to feel her out and see what's going on. She said her and Merritt were having a talk about because there were apparently divorce papers written up. He had had papers written up when she left, and she was saying that they discussed how Merritt wanted her name off the property, and um, I guess that hadn't been finalized or put through yet. Um, what was your understanding? Who, who ended up, whose name ended up being on that property? Do you remember? Honest. So, so that was very interesting to me because the actual night, hours before he was killed, Connie herself tells police the next day or the day after that that was one of the things they were talking about. The whole discussion where he said to her, um, I didn't want to put, I wanted your name off the property because, uh, and I think he wanted to put it in your name. He said, a chi- it sounded like he was saying a child. They redacted the children's names from the report, but you were the only one of age enough that they, I would assume they would have put it at the time. And he wanted to um, put it in, in maybe your name instead, and they eventually were going to put it in all the kids' names, but um, he told her, Connie said, he told her he didn't want it, he didn't want her name on it because he was afraid that, um, you know, if something, I guess if something happened to him, she would just sell the property and he didn't want the property sold. He wanted it to stay in the family, I guess. So 
that to me is a huge motive, but they never, other than that one moment, they don't mention it in the, in the police report at all. See, I just feel like um, Danny too missed a lot. He, he, I don't feel like he was a thorough investigator. What was your impressions of him? Does, but yeah, after a thousand phone calls and talking to him, it was always nothing new, nothing new, nothing new. That I got scratching my head. I got so much going on here. You, you're, you're in the wrong place. They were more, more involved of being where that truck got stuck pulling it into that sand bedment where they drug his body out of it into the water where he finally died. His body died from being, from the water intake going into it where they drug him into it. So it was that far into the water? The whole front end was down there? Uh, they drove it south. I would say probably 30 foot, 28 to 30 foot away from the water line where the truck just got stuck. It's a, it's a white, sand, even bedmet bottom. Hmm. Being a two-wheel drive truck, it, no, I can understand it why it got stuck. Yeah, I mean, Merritt would never have driven down that far because he knew it wasn't going to get it out if he did. No. Uh, huh. Yeah, just a lot of fishing questions. It's just, it's just a lot of time spent there and a lot of time lost at the house were you there when they when they finally did come and check out the house no i wasn't there i was at home and back in venice do you know if they searched inside ma'am i can't tell you that because i was not there and, and that, as far as me finding that candle mm-hmm. it's on itself out I might be the only one to ever remember looking at that. I'm sitting looking at it right now through my eyes. I wish I could put a video. Yeah. <laughs> a video and look in a wall and I could just show people what I'm looking at. Yeah, because that's interesting. I mean, if someone tried to burn the house down. Um, well, no, not try to burn it down. Use the candle for a light. Oh. Turn it on a light in the hallway. Oh, that's interesting. He was a real strong man. Daddy was three times stronger than his weight, and for in order for somebody to hurt Daddy, they'd had to die behind him. And it makes real sense because when they found his body, he's, he's in underwear and he's freshly shaven. So that's showing you where he took a shower and went to bed. And so the first, let's say the first at the autopsy shows first intentional blow was where the skull was dislocated off the top, off of one of the vertebrae. That act tells me how they got a hold of Daddy. And then when I, I told you a point that his hands, his hands, the bones in his hands were broke where he was swinging and trying to hit him but had no control where he was hitting. Did you actually see that report? No, this is probably coming out of Danny Cool's mouth. Oh, he told you that about his hands? Yes. Because that's not in the reports. But see, I don't have the whole autopsy report. I just have the summary of findings, and they don't mention anything about defensive wounds. Rural settings, where homes or trailers sit on multiple acre parcels of land, give people space to breathe and not be on top of one another, like in a subdivision. But those types of environments do make it easier for people who may be up to no good to do that not-so-good stuff without being detected by a neighbor peeking across their lawn. The homes in this area of Arcadia sit back off the road at the end of long driveways that are nestled into wooded areas off a two-lane road that is lined on both sides by woods as you drive. 
Whatever happened on the night that Merritt Wheeler was killed, if his wife is lying and he didn't leave home to go hunting, something occurred in that home or yard that wasn't seen, but was possibly heard by a few neighbors who were awakened by noises. Apparently nobody saw someone drive Merritt Wheeler's truck down his driveway with him bleeding inside, but that is most certainly the working theory here. Who is the question? And we've got a couple good suspects. Connie Wheeler's boyfriend, Frankie Lamar, who lived basically across the street, and her brother, who was apparently living in a tent on property nearby. Both men had the means and the opportunity to kill Merritt Wheeler, but motive is what we want to consider. And we should also consider whether we believe that the two men together committed that murder. And then, separately, there's the question of whether Connie Wheeler had any part in her husband's murder, or had knowledge of it afterwards, to include helping cover up the crime, or lie about what she knew. If you guys have learned anything about me by now, you know that I am all about the timelines. It's the thing I first start with when I am putting together a case. Dates, times, what's happening when. So let's take a look first at what was going on in Arcadia, Florida, during that weekend leading up to Merritt being found dead on that Tuesday morning. That Friday on October 24th was Frankie Lamar's last day at the gas station. Connie picked him up and took him to get his paycheck. Now remember, Connie had run off with this guy, taking the kids initially and then bringing them back after a very short time, then leaving them with Merritt to take care of while trying to work and put food on the table. Connie came back to Arcadia after being gone for months, but didn't move back in with her husband. No, she continued to live, across the street, with Frankie Lamar at his dad's house. Perry Hoff, Merritt's boss, says that Merritt was struggling to manage the kids, trying to talk Connie into coming back to live with him. And at first, she just started watching the kids while he was at work, but she continued to sleep across the street. She eventually does come back only a couple weeks before he is murdered. Yet she is still apparently seeing Frankie. And according to Perry Hoff, he noticed that things were starting to go bad again. Merritt was telling him things like if something happens to him, they should look at Connie, his wife. And he also told his mother that. So Connie is picking her boyfriend up and taking him to cash a check just days before her husband is murdered. Despite what Connie and Frankie say, Merritt was not happy about their continued coziness. We know that because the day that she drove him to cash that check, that Friday before the murder, Merritt came over to Willie's house, yelling for Frankie to come outside and fight him. But on top of all that, this outburst apparently occurs on the same day that Connie's brother Pete had brought pot over to his house, and according to Willie and Frankie and Ronnie Dryman, given it to Merritt's young, teenaged son. I think the evidence is clear that Merritt Wheeler was pissed at both Frankie and Pete, and things with both men had come to a head the weekend before he was killed. I think that fact is what makes this story a bit muddy for investigators and might play into why the case has never been resolved. So the next day, on Saturday the 25th, the day after Merritt goes across the street and threatens to beat Frankie's ass, Frankie was at Bill Hagen's house, and so was Pete. Now remember, Bill is that pot dealer, and Frankie said he went over there to talk about his bulldog and to ask to buy some pot, 
and he ran into Pete over there. We know that he was there with Pete because the investigator asked him when the last time he saw Pete was, and he tells him that Saturday, at Bill's on that occasion. There were a couple of other guys there as well, one of which said that he had a bullet with Merritt's name on it. Pete had told him that Merritt threatened a bunch of them, and one day someone's going to get him. So basically, Frankie just told us that two days before the murder, he, Connie's brother, and a few other guys were hanging out, commiserating about Merritt Wheeler and how one day he was going to end up dead. We also have that last interview with Frankie where he tells us that he and Pete and Connie were smoking pot out there in the yard a day or two before the murder, and that would have been on this day, Saturday. Is it possible that weekend some sort of plan began to formulate between Frankie and Pete? Or is that just a coincidence? Is it possible that they were all talking about it? Their issues with him? And while it may not have been some sort of conspiracy, it might have led to one of them going ahead and killing Merritt Wheeler. The next day, Sunday the 26th, Willie Lamar had dinner with Connie and Merritt. He says they cleaned fish and gopher, and Merritt and Frankie went hog hunting together on that day. Merritt told Willie about his conversation with Pete about that pot incident, and that Pete had called wanting to talk to his sister Connie, and she told him she didn't want to talk to him anymore. Merritt was very upset about the pot situation, and Connie had told her brother Pete on the phone, I'm trying to live happy now. I don't want to talk to you. Willie said that both Connie and Merritt told him about that call on Saturday, so it does seem like it was top of mind with both wheelers on that weekend. Willie even said Merritt told Pete if he saw him again, he'd make him wish he was dead. And I'm sure old Pete believed him because he had done it before. I think it's relevant to remember that Pete was only 21 at this time, already had criminal convictions, and he had lived with his sister from a young age, and then with her and Merritt, until Merritt kicked him out right before the murder. He had been staying around with neighbors in different places, but eventually he ended up living in a tent nearby. Pete was now persona non grata at the Wheeler house, and I can see that really upsetting him, especially since his sister's boyfriend, Frankie Lamar, was suddenly so chummy with his brother-in-law, despite having slept with his wife. They had even just gone hunting. I can see a 21-year-old feeling resentful about that. Why isn't Merritt beating his ass? I didn't do anything that bad. When you look at the timeline with all of that in mind, certain possibilities begin to emerge. So now let's look at Monday, the 27th, the day before his body is found. Merritt works a full day. Although multiple witnesses, his boss, his mom, his friend, they all say that he wasn't feeling good. One friend, Bill Sane, asked him if he wanted to go hunting that night, and he said no. And that's just a couple hours before he's in for the night and they have no other guests, none that we know of. And then after that, we only have Connie Wheeler's word for what occurred in that house or outside of it, because the next thing we know, Merritt Wheeler, clad in only his underwear, is found submerged in Horse Creek. Based on his interviews, we can see that Deputy Dan focused primarily on Frankie Lamar. More recent investigators, however, focused on her brother, Pete Duell. It's unclear what any of the investigators believed regarding Frankie and Pete working together, but it does appear that the later investigators believe that Connie was in collusion with her brother, Pete, at least as far as after the fact, 
lying and covering up. I didn't get a sense that Pete and Frankie were best buddies, not from anything that I read, but I do believe, and I think there is evidence to suggest, that their paths had converged more closely in that last few days before the murder. They also both skipped town right after the murder, which is another red flag. It's hard for me to imagine any scenario in which Connie Wheeler is not involved, or at least has knowledge after the fact, and that is mainly based upon Merritt's state of undress and the fact that nobody that police spoke with believed her story about him going hunting, not a single person. The only way Connie's story works is if Merritt lied to her that night about where he was going, and he did get dressed and take off with his gun, and then he ran into his assailant or assailants elsewhere. But what doesn't really make sense with that theory is why any assailant would remove his clothing. There is just no need to do that, and it's actually more risky to take the time to do it with no benefit to them. But let's just play devil's advocate for a minute and say that Merritt grabbed his gun and headed across the street to have a chat with his wife's boyfriend, Frankie. I suspect that if he had done that, his father, Willie Lamar, would have known about that, since it was at his house. But instead, when Willie Lamar was in the hospital and thought that he was dying, he confessed that his son Frankie and Pete had ambushed Merritt while he was having sex with Connie that night, and one of the children had waken up and seen something to do with the crime. How would he know that second detail? Well, first, we know that Willie's daughter was there that night sleeping over, and she may have told investigators years later that she didn't hear anything or remember anything. But it's possible that back in 1980, as a child, she said something to her father to tip him off, that one of the kids had woken up. Or his son Frankie told him. But that is not a detail that was in the press, and so it seems likely that Willie had heard it from someone who was there that night. Willie says that Merritt was attacked while he and Connie were having sex. That theory would mean that Connie was present and involved, and she lied. Perry Hoff was also asked his thoughts about what occurred. Did he normally go hunting or anything? He would go hunting. He liked to go hunting. He had, he had a dog. He'd go hunting. And uh, that was one of the things he told uh, my secretary that he went hunting, but his dog was still here at the house. And that struck me kind of odd that he wouldn't take his dog because he liked to take his dog. Would he normally go hunting on the nights that uh, he had to go to work the next yeah, day? Yeah, he would have never been. I knew when she said he went hunting, she was lying because he was too tired and sick. He didn't feel good, and it, it, he didn't go hunting. That was that was not a good story. She, uh, one thing, he was too tired. He went home too late that night, and he, he, he didn't take his dog. My, my gut feeling, and I bet money on it, that... Her boyfriend come in the house, probably in there in the bed because he's probably tired, went in there and laid down. And when he heard him in there, he probably come out and they got in a scuffle. And then uh, either or, they could have went in there and hit him while he was in the bed and drug him out. Uh, and then of course he had to get somebody to help him drag him into the truck and drive the truck and take him down there and drop his truck off and then somebody had to pick him up, whoever did it, and bring him back. Basically, if he's somebody that 
probably we wouldn't want to tangle with by ourselves. You, no, if he wasn't tired, if he wasn't feeling halfway decent, you wouldn't want to tangle with him. I, he, I think either two guys jumped him or they hit him while he was in bed. That's the only way they could have got him. You mentioned something to me before we started this that she had some concerns about Connie's brother. Well, Connie's brother was friends with this guy. That's how Connie got hooked up with him. When you say friends with this guy, just for the record, we're talking about Connie's boy. Right. And uh, his name was Pete? The brother's name was Pete. Uh, did Pete also work for you at a time? At the time, he did. Okay. After this happened? I've never, never seen him again. So he never showed up for work no, after this? he never come back to work. Well, actually, while we're talking about Pete, I guess you had mentioned a couple years later you run into him. Um, I saw him one day in the house. I was helping an electrician friend build. I went by uh, to check on something, and he was in there working on the drywall. Pete was. And uh, I noticed him up on the scaffold and just kind of kind of nodded my head and said hi as I walked through the house. And later he told the homeowner that uh, he used to work for me and that he didn't think that I liked him. And that was that was the end of that. Did Pete ever show back up to get his check? Not that I can remember. Okay. The part about the underwear and where Merritt was found are facts, but we need to disregard them for our purposes because both were published in the newspaper, so our letter writer could have conceivably learned those from the news. Also, articles mentioned Merritt being hit on the front and back of the head, but other details from that letter were not mentioned in the newspaper like the use of a baseball bat. Now, we don't know what weapon was used on Merritt, and the medical examiner said something more than a fist, but we know that Pete was said to have used a baseball bat on someone else, Connie's boyfriend James. When Pete was threatening him because of what Connie had told him about Pete killing Merritt. And even if it's not a bat per se, Pete's weapon of choice appears to involve a bludgeoning instrument, which is in fact how Merritt was killed. There were other interesting details in that letter, written by the inmate. Merritt was enticed out of the house to investigate noises around the truck, and he came out in his underwear and was attacked. Now, the letter gets it wrong about the day of the week and about the dog. It said that the dog was shot. We know that Merritt didn't even bring his dogs that night. But the letter does mention a shotgun that was thrown away and a motorcycle being put in the back of the truck at some point. That was certainly not something reported in the papers, nor was mention of the t-shirt found in the truck full of blood. And according to the letter, that t-shirt belonged to Frankie Lamar. One has to wonder how Pete's fellow inmate would have known Frankie Lamar's name other than if Pete told him. Pete's jailhouse buddy says that Pete told him the motorcycle had been put in the back of the truck at some point. That seems like something that would require two people to lift. And here's a little bit of food for thought. Did Merritt grab his gun on the way out, and that's how the gun made its way outside near the truck? I can see him walking out holding it and being ambushed from behind, hit on the back of the head, and never being able to use the gun. Then the perpetrator or perpetrators toss it into the truck, along with Merritt, and later dispose of it. The letter also mentioned Pete being threatened by Merritt because of past bad relations, and Pete running up a large phone bill on his number. You'll also recall that the letter writer used the word Indian to describe Merritt, 
something that I did not find in any of the news articles, but it was how all the neighbors described him. So there is certainly some compelling information that the letter writer told police that it's likely only people involved in the crime would know. And to back that up, investigators had Pete himself on jail phone calls admitting to telling another inmate about killing Merritt. It does appear that Pete Duell is the suspect with the most circumstantial evidence against him. But did he have help? And was there an effort at covering it up? So let's presume for a minute that Connie is innocent and she knows nothing about what occurred. First, let's start with the basics. How did the killer get Merritt's truck keys? Well, I asked his son about that. Do you remember where your dad would keep his truck keys? Would he ever leave the keys to his truck in his truck? Yes. There's no sense of taking them out. Okay, so he that wouldn't be abnormal for him to leave his keys in the truck? No, it's, that's just that's normal, everyday deal. So it's possible that the keys were already outside, perhaps in the glove box that the police report noted had been open and blood inside. Now let's go one further and say that it's certainly possible that Merritt took his missing weapon outside with him, if he was lured out there, and the perpetrator or perpetrators simply tossed it into the truck with him and disposed of it later. That could account for it being missing, with nobody having to enter the Wheeler home to get it. Merritt being unclothed when he was found seems to suggest that he went to that door in his underwear, something akin to that theory about Merritt being lured outside to his truck because of some noise, as the letter said or was attacked inside the house, as Willie Lamar's deathbed confession suggested, while he and his wife were having sex. But what if it's a combination of the two? What if Connie was having sex with Merritt, whether innocently or her part in some conspiracy was to distract Merritt, hence the sex part of the story? In either scenario, though, Connie is involved in the cover-up afterward. I tend to think that nothing dramatic happened in that bedroom because of the kids and them not having a door on their room. Had someone beaten the shit out of their father right there inside the house, near his bed, and then had to get his body out of the house? I'm not so sure that three kids would sleep through all of that. Yet we do have one child saying that he was awakened by the sound of vomiting, and he was scared enough to hide beneath his covers. In that scenario, if this occurred on the night in question, that means Connie was awake because she went in to tell the boy that everything was okay. What I'm proposing is that I can envision a scenario where the story that Willie Lamar got wind of and the story that Pete told his cellmate were the same story, only told in different ways as the person interpreting it understood the story. Maybe Frankie told his dad that Pete and Connie had a plan to do something to merit and it involved Connie distracting Merritt. It goes without saying that this ambush would be more easily accomplished if there were two assailants against one victim. If this attack occurred in the Wheeler driveway, Connie is probably hearing it, because she told police that she heard Merritt's truck start up and leave. So if she'd be able to hear that from the driveway inside the house, she would also be able to hear a knockdown dragout fight in her driveway although it is possible that the first blow rendered Merritt unconscious. He was put into the vehicle, and then he could have gained consciousness at some point, and more assaults on him occurred inside the cab of that truck. 
But the thing that makes me think that Connie may have heard something is that multiple neighbors who lived further away than her bedroom did hear something that night and they were awakened. And if the noises that they heard were Merritt being assaulted, then Connie most likely would have had to hear it as well. Did he always park in the same spot? Where, In relation to the house, where did he park his truck? It was more or less always in the same. Depending on what he had. Like I said, if he brought home wire or a post or food, it's depending on what location, what he had a cargo on the bed of the truck, he might have to have to unload it. It probably be worth he unloaded and just left it. But would it be... So that sets him moving at 10, 15, 20 foot, and then I can walk back to it. So if, for example, there was a commotion, if he was lured outside of the house and there was commotion around the truck, would you expect to anyone that was inside the house to hear? Was it that close to the house that if something was going on near the truck that they might hear it, or is it further away? They would have had to hear it. Okay. Um, now... Did you know your dad, he was found in his underwear, obviously. Did you know him to come to the door? Let's say if someone knocked, he would just walk to the door in his underwear. That would not be unusual. No, but no, that'd be normal. And that who would be there at one I mean, you come to my house, I open up the door. You're in my, <laughs> you're in my, you know, my, my dwelling. <laughs> get dressed, answer the door for you. Can I help you out? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, everybody said it was normal. I just wanted to make sure that was your um, perspective as well. And did they lock their door? Their that, the door. It was a trailer, right? Yes. No, ma'am. There was no need, no need in locking the door. Okay. Uh, yeah. Some of these things I was wondering because there are other stories that you know. There's different theories that different people had, and there were other stories that maybe he was in bed with Connie at the time, and he was ambushed. Someone came in the house. So where the truck was parked at, I found blood. Around both sides of their truck on the grass. Um. When was this? When? What day did you, the day you got there? This has been. It could be either Wednesday. The next day after I found out on that Tuesday or Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, I was there on the property. That's when I found the blood. I could. The truck was in parallel of the walkway going into the residence. Uh. That that weekend. It was a two-by-four that Daddy had leaned against beside the front door, a short one, about three foot, four foot long. I put it in a burn pile, and Dad had asked me where that board had got off to. And I told him, I said, Dad, I put it in the burn pile. He said, you need to put that board back right where you got it from. I said, yes, sir. So it's the two-by-four that I put in the burn pile to burn. Went back to where I got it from and didn't ask no questions. Hmm. So that, there would have been a two-by-four. There should have been one laying right there by or up against the... Yeah, something was up that I didn't know. And I, if he wanted me to know, he would have told me. Because Daddy had nothing to hide from nobody. Mm-hmm. Well, I, he, he was having some problems with Pete at the time, and it, it, many of the neighbors said he had beat Pete's ass basically a few times for stealing things and doing different things. And right. um, so, you know, it's possible he had that by the door in case he came back, you know, that he had thrown him out. So. Yeah, that's his own protection. Yep. So that doesn't um, surprise me at all. Um, and, you know, now that you're saying that, they, they were thinking um, that, you know, a blunt 
instrument was used on your father, it's possible if that was there that night, you know, who knows that that could have been used also. If Pete is the killer alone, did he have the foresight to put his stolen motorcycle in the cab of the truck before he left with Merritt from their driveway, figuring he would dump the body and truck at Horse Creek and then have a ready getaway vehicle? Because it was him that mentioned motorcycle tracks at the scene where Merritt was found. I don't think that he would mention those if he had not used that vehicle at that scene. And if he did have the foresight to pop that vehicle in the trunk as his getaway vehicle, did he have the strength to get it in there himself without leaving any sign at the scene that he had done so? I feel like dragging a motorcycle out of the bed of a truck might leave some tracks. Maybe it did, and they missed it. There's certainly nothing in the documents that tells me they had evidence that something was taken out of the back of the truck, which would involve footprints and motorcycle prints. It's also possible that there was someone who followed the killer to Horse Creek, waited for the perpetrator to dump the body, and then drove the killer away from that scene. But again, where are all those prints? Perhaps the getaway motorcycle was placed nearby, or the person assisting in another vehicle parked nearby and waited for Pete to finish dumping Merritt's body and the truck. Based on the news articles that hinted at a problematic crime scene, and Connie herself saying that she ran down there after hearing about the white truck when the two men were talking about it at that local store, the convenience store, it's possible the scene was contaminated before they even had a chance to rope it off. David Perry entered that scene twice that we know of, and he admitted that he had been making prints the first time. Then he went back a second time, after making the call to 911. It wouldn't be the first time that we have found that a scene was compromised in the early minutes of an investigation. That often occurs even unwittingly. I think the one thing that I'm convinced about personally is that Merritt did not leave to go hunting that night, or leave dressed at all, because there doesn't seem to be any viable explanation for why a perpetrator would remove his clothing. There is no benefit to them in doing so. To me, this feels more like a poor attempt to stage a scene to make it look like something it wasn't between conspirators who weren't doing a great job of thinking ahead. That hunting story was likely an afterthought, and it came apart due to a few things. One, where Merritt was left. Two, the fact that he went at all, given he wasn't feeling well. And three, Bill Sane asking Merritt to go hunting that evening and Merritt declining which I don't think Connie knew about until Deputy Dan told her that little detail. She said in her interview that Bill never came inside the house. He and Merritt talked outside. If she gave that story as a cover-up, it appears that she did so without realizing that her husband had already turned down an offer to go hunting. The other thing we can say for sure is that Connie lied to police from the very first interview. First, she initially denied having affairs with people other than Frankie. But that lie unraveled pretty quickly. And I don't put too much stock in that because I expect people to lie about having affairs. That's just a normal reaction. But she also lied in that very first interview when State Attorney Kurt Siver asked her if Merritt was having any problems with anyone or anyone had any problems with him. She said no, and we know that's a lie, because he was certainly having problems with her brother Pete. He had repeatedly stole from Merritt, 
and he had fabricated an entire story about Merritt being outside with a gun, which, at least in part, led to his wife leaving town with her boyfriend. And right before the murder, Merritt had banished Pete from their house. Yet Connie never mentioned any of this to police. She was clearly covering for her brother. Pete seemed like he was pissed enough things were coming to a head with him because he had just been thrown off the property. That Yeah, there was a grudge between Daddy and Pete. And I can tell you how this happened. Daddy could come home on a Friday four weeks paycheck. His wallet come up missing. Oh, wow. And who, I mean, who else in the house would want to take Daddy's money besides Pete? Was that right around the time the, of the murder, or months before, or what? Prior, prior, several. I can't pinpoint how many days, or maybe several months, two months, three months. I can't really pinpoint the time. This is where the grudge just started. When this wallet come up missing. Well, also, there's a note in the report that Pete stole your dad's truck. He could have had, but if he'd done that, I wouldn't have known nothing about it. And that's... Uh, the daddy didn't file no report or tell me nothing that, hey, daddy had only had this truck just for a couple of weeks. Oh, it was new. Okay. It, wasn't, it was new to daddy. It was a used truck, but right. it was new to him. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and so... The, if he did steal that truck, that's why I was asking about the keys. Do you think if Pete had stolen his fairly new-to-him truck, he would still continue to leave the keys outside? Nah, if Pete had really taken this truck and Daddy got his hands on him, Pete probably wouldn't have been able to drive nothing. <laughs> he did. He beat his ass with a belt. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I just don't know how true that's can be. Well, he did. There were neighbors that saw, that knew about the truck being stolen and your father beating Pete's ass because of it. But he probably didn't report it to police. You know, it was only learned later. He, oh, maybe Daddy took care of you. Know, Daddy probably took care of his own business. It, that, like, uh, exactly. Yeah. Daddy, just like Daddy's paycheck being gone. One time with Daddy, we took, went to a dump and we took a chair to a dump, a landfill. Daddy says, I'm going to see something. He pulls his knife out and he cuts his chair up and he finds his wallet. If there's a whole mound of payroll still in it. <gasps> wow. I remember him coming off the ground smiling because he had found his money, his wallet, his ID. I remember him, he cut, pulled his knife out and cut it in half because he had to replace his driver's license because of being gone in his wallet. So, so you, you don't know, you don't so think it was it, a happy day to him finding that wallet, which <laughs> that didn't take away that grudge that he put on Pete for accusing Pete of taking stealing his money. How so? How did he figure that it got in the chair? Then it just he it, it just got shoved down in there or something Maybe accidentally. It could have slipped out of Daddy's back pocket, or how it could have got wedged in there. Dad had had lost it. Because if somebody else would have got it, they would have took his cash out of it. Yeah, and you know what? With toddlers around the house, too, right? You have toddlers I mean, around. Pete would have found his wallet, and you'd think he would have just took the money out of it and stuck it right back where he picked it up from. 
Exactly. One well, of the kids. I missed a four-week payroll still on it. Well, that's very interesting because if he found it, then obviously Pete didn't take it, but Pete knew that he had been unjustly accused, so that would have been more things that pissed him off. But Pete was known to steal from him and steal from everybody in the neighborhood. So right. what do you expect when you steal from people? You know, like that's what was happening. And and do you know, remember the Fords? I think Henry and Ava Ford. Do you remember those neighbors? He's calling them Ford, their last name? Yeah. Henry. I can't remember nobody there by the name of Ford. Well, there was a... Uh, I don't know if they were initially together, but they, they got together at the time. They were interviewed also, and she said that um, Pete kept kept on and on stealing from Merritt over and over, and it would just irritate, you know, he'd he'd go and beat his ass, and then he'd, you know, he'd do it again. Do you remember your father, you know, how they interacted, Pete and him, prior to the murder? What was their relationship like? Do you remember that they, would they, were they on friendly terms at all, or were they, what were they like to you, apparent, you know, just when you... I- well, I see Daddy had to keep a smile towards his face, towards him, because it being Connie's brother. So he was trying the best he could. He was he, putting he, up with it. Yeah, tried to, I guess, to keep family neutral. Yeah. And Daddy didn't like him. No. Well, because of the reason he was on drugs. Daddy was against people that did that. There's one piece of information that I do find interesting in the probable cause information submitted in 2016. Among the list was this statement, quote, Following the murder, a pair of boots were located that belonged to the victim at Pete Duell's campsite. There was a lot of blood on the inside of the boots. Pete Duell later admitted to detectives that he, in fact, did steal the victim's boots. Now, a lot of blood seems to indicate that police believe Merritt was wearing those boots when he was attacked which would mean that Pete Duell's assertion that he took those boots from the Wheeler house after the homicide is absolutely a lie. What seems more reasonable is that Merritt Wheeler stepped into his boots before walking outside in his underwear. Given the Florida terrain and things like an abundance of snakes and other critters that might do injury to bare feet, particularly at night, I can picture him stepping into his boots before he walked outside rather than go barefoot. I know that I wouldn't go outside barefoot in my yard at night. I won't even do it during the day. In the end, I don't think there is much evidence that Connie Wheeler planned her husband's murder with her brother. She may have, but I just don't see it in the evidence. She may not have even known that her brother planned to do it until it was too late. It may have been the impulsive act that night of a 21-year-old who was hot under the collar because he had just that weekend before been banished from his sister's house. But unfortunately, in every scenario that I can envision, with the information that I have, Connie Wheeler is implicated in the cover-up. And that's sad, because there are children who lost their father to violence and live with the distinct possibility that their mother or stepmother was involved. I can't think of a more difficult burden to go to sleep with at night. Merritt Wheeler is buried in the Oak Ridge Cemetery in Arcadia, Florida. The epitaph on his grave reads, A good man who loved Florida wildlife. 
I cover this case because I think there are some people out there who have information that could help this good man get the justice that he deserves and maybe help answer some questions for the people who still want to know what happened. If you have any information about the murder of Merritt Wheeler, please contact the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office at 863-993-4700, or you can call the Southwest Florida Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. You can also contact me with any thoughts or questions, and my email is deckerjenny at gmail.com. That's D-E-C-K-E-R-J-E-N-I at gmail.com. I know just as of the last couple months, the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office has put out a poster wanting more information about Merritt's case. So it does look like they are actively looking into it again at this time. So if you do have information that you think is relevant, I assure you that no detail would be too small. They would like to hear from you. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll leave you with this track from Color. This song is called White Crow Flies. See you next season. Down by the river where the rubies grew.